0: Standing face to face with with he who died. Join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith.
1: Would you join me in prayer? And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Welcome to St. Andrew's Sunday. Our college kids go away, and they're often disappointed when they go to the Presbyterian Church nearby, and they don't have St. Andrew's Sunday, and we tell them when they come home, it's because we made it up. I mean, <laughs> this is our own thing. This is what we do. No one else does it, but it is very special to us, and it is really great to see you in the spirit of things, dressed as you are, although I'm finding myself a little dizzied by the, uh, the array of plaid that I find before me uh, this morning. Cindy and I returned This week, from a board meeting back at Montreat College, a wonderful and unabashed uh, Christian school in beautiful Northwest Appalachian, North Carolina. Our daughter, Rachel, as many of you know, is the Dean of Spiritual Formation there, which is kind of the, the chaplain, the campus pastor. And while we were there, she was devoting a lot of her time to caring for one young woman who was going through a real financial crisis. And it's not that this woman isn't, uh, this young student isn't hardworking, she is, she is a responsible person, but she, she uh, was never even learned the most basic of money principles from her family. Uh, and she's not alone. Rachel said, Dad, you would be surprised how many kids are one car repair away from financial disaster. Actually, I wouldn't, because I think the same thing could be said for many here this morning. Many people are living on the financial edge, aren't they? Especially in these, de- these inflationary days. Um, there are many who spend more than they make, move balances from one credit card to another. They don't know how to be generous, even if they wanted to be. They live from paycheck to paycheck and have no hope or plan for a prosperous future, for which everyone longs for. I wonder if that describes any of you here today? If so, I have some good news for you. Dr. Luke has a prescription. Luke has more to say about managing your money and your possessions than any other of the gospel writers. And it's probably because Jesus had so much to say on the topic. Did you know that apart from the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus spoke more about the topic of money than any other single issue? I guess the Lord thought it was important for us. One of our newer members recently said, I'm surprised about how little you talk about money compared to other churches that we've attended. I think it was a compliment, I'm not sure. But how we deal with our wealth is such a key part of our life. If we don't talk about it, if we don't learn to apply biblical principles to our wealth, our finances, we're not helping people to live the full, faithful lives of discipleship that I think everyone wants to if they are in Christ. So for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to let Luke tell us about what it means to master our money. And if you're finding yourself squirming in your pew already, just relax. It might be a sign, however, that the Holy Spirit has some work to do in that part of your heart. This morning, on a day when we celebrate our heritage and honor those saints who have gone before us, we're going to consider the topic of legacy. Would you say that? Legacy. I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say about the things that we leave behind. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. I have cotton mouth today. There are a few things that are more painful than inheritance wars. If you've been through them, you know what I'm talking about. I was with a man recently who was an executor of an estate, and he was lamenting the way that the family members were battling for the share that they wanted, like vultures picking over a corpse. And in our text, a man comes to Jesus, and he asks him to intervene, to persuade his brother, probably his elder brother, who is normally the one who got more of the estate, probably to persuade him, to give him a larger share. And Jesus says, who made me the guy that's going to be a part of that? I have no interest in being part of that. I'm not going to be your arbitrator in this. But instead, he uses the opportunity to teach on the 10th commandment. I think back to Sunday school, what is the 10th commandment? That's what I thought. It it is the most forgettable of all the commandments. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. The first four of the 10 commandments are about loving God. We're supposed to love God and love our neighbors. So the first four are the love God commandments. The second six, however, they tell us how to love our neighbor. And number 10 of those six, the last of the bunch, is unique because it is the only commandment that it is internal. An observer can tell whether or not you honor your parents. They can tell whether or not you murder someone or cheat on your spouse or steal or lie. But no one can tell whether or not you covet. It's the only hidden commandment. And in some ways, it is the most difficult because it's hard, isn't it? not to envy nice things that someone else has that you wish that you had, that you think you deserve. Why them and not you? And Jesus says to this guy who is coveting more, he says, be careful of number 10, of coveting other people's stuff because life is more than stuff. That's a good translation of the Greek. I want you to say it with me. Go. Life is more than stuff. Say it as if you believe it. Life is more than I don't believe you. (laughs) We love our stuff and no one has more stuff than Americans. We have so much stuff we don't know what to do with it all and still we covet more. I've shared this story before but one year our dear friend Marjorie who will be watching this online right now, hi Marjorie, hi Drew, they are in Scotland, they came and visited us and as we drove back from the airport, She pointed to a storage rental facility and said, what's that? (laughs) I said, it's a storage facility. She had never seen one before. They don't have them in Scotland. She said, what's a storage facility? I said, it's where you store the stuff that we don't have room for in our houses. She paused for a moment and said, you mean you don't have enough room in your enormous houses to store everything you have or need? And she was flabbergasted to imagine that we would pay rent for extra rooms to store stuff we almost never use. And by the way, there's a new high-rise facility going up right down here. Get your deposit now while you got a chance. 90% of storage facilities in the world are in the United States. 90 percent. We love our stuff, all our stuff, and other people's stuff, too. (laughs) And Jesus tells the story of a rich man to illustrate the folly of covetousness. This is the only, the second time in this book that that Jesus calls anyone a fool, and it's a very harsh word in that culture. And why was he foolish? I think there are two words That define this man, and maybe our folly as well. Here they are, my and more. Say it with me, my and more. First, take a look at my. I want you to notice as we read through this how many times the fool references himself. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops." And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul. You get the idea? How many times did you count? 11 times. In that tiny little passage, 11 times, my and I, my how smart am I, how clever I am, how shrewd my plans to build my larger barns, to store my crops and my grain and my goods, my, my, my. The irony is, the very first words of the story remind us of the true source of his wealth. This, the story opens with this, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. It was the land of the rich man that made him rich, land that was fertile and productive, land that God created and gave to him. But there is no sense of gratitude or indebtedness to God in any of this guy's comments. As far as he is concerned, his success, his wealth was all his doing. I still remember a conversation with a wealthy widow in our church many, many years ago. But it stands out, I know where I was standing when I had this conversation with her. I remember that vividly. She said, you know, Mark, you say that everything I have is a gift from God, but it was our hard work that made us successful. God had nothing to do with it. Exactly. I moved. <laughs> Just in case. God had nothing to do with that. That is foolish. You are a fool if you think that your prosperity is all you're doing. And I know it was your idea, it was your hard work, it was your risk-taking, it was your sacrifice that helped you to succeed, and I say, well done on that, well done. My dad mortgaged our family home and took a risk to build a state-of-the-art tortilla manufacturing plant in Zilla that provided for his family for the rest of his life. The Bible honors hard work and shrewd planning. But beloved, I have taken trips to Mexico, mission trips, and I have seen there some of the hardest working people I have ever met. And those of you who have gone know that I'm ta- what I'm talking about, and yet they live in poverty. Now why is that? It doesn't hurt that we were born in the good old U.S. of A. A wonderful country that provides opportunity and rewards hard work in a way that few places in the world do. And by the way, if we don't begin to reinstill the value of hard work in the next generation, we are in trouble. We beloved, won the geographic lottery. You know that, right? You, most of you, were born in America, not in Haiti, and you had nothing to do with that. So if you look at your wealth, your prosperity, your success, and you consider it only a result of your effort— you ignore entirely the fact that Almighty God has blessed you with opportunities most people in this world could only dream of, and you are as foolish as the man in the story. My, my, my. That's foolish. Here's the second foolish principle, more. More, more, more. When his land produces an overabundance so that he cannot even store it all, what is the fool's solution to this problem? to share the bounty with others, to give away some of his abundance, to do the Lord's work by blessing others? Nope. He tears down perfectly good barns, and he builds bigger ones so that he can hoard every last grain of that abundant crop for himself. And then he tells himself a lie. So, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Now you can relax and eat and drink and be merry. He persuades himself that just one more barnful will do the trick. That's all it takes. One more barnful, and then he will be happy, and then he can relax and enjoy life, and it's a lie. Because no matter how much he has, he never has enough. No matter how much he has, he doesn't even consider sharing. No matter how much he has, he always wants more. That is the poison of covetousness. We always want more. And of course, the punchline is just when he thinks he finally has what he needs to really enjoy life, God says, you fool, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and he breathes his last, and everything he worked so hard to hoard for himself is left behind to others he does not even know. It has been said that you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. (laughs) You truly, 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 truly cannot take it with you. Only a fool thinks he can. So my and more, those are two foolish words. What are the wiser alternatives? What are the antidotes to my and more? Here they are, God and enough. God and enough. My and more, no, God and and enough. Let's take them backwards. First of all, the antidote to more is enough. We learn to say, I have enough. Why don't you repeat that with me? I have Very good. I have enough. When I started here, my salary was $36,000 a year. I thought it was exorbitant. (laughs) I make more than that now. (laughs) But if you told me then that someday I would make what I make now, I would have found it hard to comprehend and I certainly would have assumed it would be all that I would ever need. And yet, as I look forward to my retirement, I still find myself asking at times, do I have what? Enough. I see that some of you have been down that road with me. It is estimated that oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller's fortune was equal to about 1% of the entire U.S. economy of the time, if you can imagine. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? His answer, just one more dollar. The covetous heart always wants one more of something, and it is the Spirit of God who whispers, "Mm, enough. One of my favorite passages in Paul's letter to the Philippians is about having enough. Paul writes, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be Content. What a great word that is. To be content. Are you content? If you never got another thing, could you be content? The siren song of our culture is more, more, more. You have to have more to be happy. And we Christ followers need to stand against that culture. And the only way for us to do that is to declare to ourselves and our family and others around us, thank you, but I have enough. So, one antidote to covetousness is the word enough. The other is pretty basic, but is the humble acknowledgement of God. It's not about me or my or I in this story. It's all about God. All that I have, all that I am, is devoted to the glory and to the purpose of God. That is our destiny, that is our legacy for which we were created. Listen again. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich fool was so focused on his financial security, he neglected the most important investment that he could make in his life, which was his relationship with Almighty God. How many would say the same to be true for them? They are so distracted by the acquisition of things that they neglect their relationship with God. They are not rich toward God. Every single thing we enjoy in this life is a gift from God. Do you believe that? Every single thing we enjoy is a gift from God. My rich widow friend did not believe that. But it is the most basic truth of Christian life. There were many wealthy people in the New Testament story, and they were affirmed. There were the the businesswomen in the Gospel of Luke who supported Jesus' ministry. There was Matthew, and there was Zacchaeus, and Barnabas, and Lydia, and many others. And the common strain among these faithful, wealthy people is they had become rich toward God. Their whole lives, including their wealth, were devoted to Jesus, they invested themselves in the work of his kingdom, and that was their legacy. What was the fool's legacy in this story? All that he had hoarded for himself went to strangers that he did not even know, and they left with nothing. Of course, and it's important to say this: our legacy is much more than money, isn't it? The more importantly, our legacy is about our family and our friends and our character. It is about our reputation our labors, our witness for Christ. But it is also about our wealth, as this parable suggests. A few weeks ago, I received an unexpected and unusual letter from an attorney informing us that Chapel Hill was the beneficiary of someone's estate. It was unexpected because we didn't know it was coming. It was unusual because so few people have left legacy gifts to their church. Almost none, in fact, over the 36 years that I've been here. And actually, I consider that a failure of leadership on my part. And it actually astounds me. People who were devoted to Chapel Hill, who loved this church, who gave generously, who tithed and more, who were leaders in this church, they failed to do in their death what they had done so well in their life. I don't get that. I will share this with you. Cindy and I have set up a trust. We intend obviously to leave something for our children, but not too much. <laughs> but we also intend to leave what we hope will be the largest legacy gift ever given to our sweetheart church because we love you. In our death, we want to keep loving you. We believe in your mission. We believe and have been honored to be serving you. And we want part of our legacy to be the continuation of this ministry into the generations to come, long after we are gone. And I wonder if there are some here this day who would be stirred by this to think maybe that's something we should look at as well. Legacy is what remains of you after you are gone. Legacy is what remains of you after you are gone. Legacy means handing off everything you have, And everything you've done to someone else. And part of leaving a healthy legacy as a pastor is knowing when that time has come. 37 years ago when I interviewed for the position of senior pastor here, I told the search committee, if you hire me, I will not treat Chapel Hill as a stepping stone. If the Lord allows it, I will give my whole ministry career to this place. I've kept my word to the Lord and to you. But after several years of conversation with my beloved Cindy and with a few key elders, friends, I believe the time has come for me to hand off the baton. I have watched too many foolish pastors who cling to their churches, who hoard their position and power and stay too long. And I don't want to be that fool. As you know, I have never considered this to be my church. You know that, right? I have never called this my church. It is your church. It is the Lord's church. I have never considered it my church. I am the shepherd. I am not the owner. And I believe it's time now for a new shepherd. So on August 31st, 2024, by that time, after 37 years, I will step down as your senior pastor. Now, this should not come as a surprise to any of you who've been paying attention. I have been dropping hints all along. Cindy and I, we are ready for a break. And we are excited about doing ministry together, and we feel like this time is the time to start that new chapter of our lives while we have health and energy. And I would also say this. We could not be more excited about God's future for our church. We have every confidence in the leadership here, every confidence in our staff, every confidence in our session and in our deacons. And we truly believe, Cindy and I, that the best years are ahead of you and not behind you. I carried my baton for a season. I did my part and helped to build a foundation. And I am very eager to see what your next leader and what all of you by God's power will do to build upon that foundation. And when that happens, and I believe it will, when Chapel Hill moves from strength to strength, from glory to glory, to eclipse everything that we have ever done together in the past, I will be your number one cheerleader. That will not threaten me, that will thrill me. In a moment we're going to watch the scrolling of the names of Chapel Hill members who helped to lay the foundation for the legacy of this church and have now gone on to be with the Lord. Over my 36 years here, this moment in October, the last Sunday of October, has become more and more poignant for me, because starting with the name Tom Everett, I remember nearly every person on that list. Tom was the first one I buried at Chapel Hill, and there are 405 more names after that, and I buried most of them, not to mention the non-members whose numbers are about 300, 700 people I've had the privilege of laying before the Lord. These may be just names to most of you, but they are precious to me. And I hope and pray that they're part of my legacy as your shepherd. So in a moment, we're going to see the names begin to scroll across the screen. I would invite you, when you see the name of your loved one, to stand and to honor them and remain standing as the scrolling continues, and to honor our beloved non-members who also passed this year, you will be able to find their names listed in our worship guide. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this sweetheart church, a church that has loved you and loved its community, a church that has loved me and been kind to me, Thank you for the things that by the power of your Spirit you have accomplished in and through us. Thank you for the legacy that we have received and the legacy we hope to hand on to the next generation. And I pray, oh God, that we would be found faithful, not storing up treasures for ourselves, not hoarding things to ourselves, wealth or pride or accomplishment, but rather living rich toward you, that ultimately the legacy of our lives would be that we were faithful to You. We lived rich lives before the Lord and in so doing have declared the bounty of God's goodness poured out to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all of God's people said, Next Sunday, following this service, the session has called a congregational meeting for two purposes. First, for this congregation to act upon my request to dissolve the pastoral relationship with Chapel Hill, effective August 31st, 2024. And second, for the congregation to confirm the slate of a pastor search committee that the session will present to you. And if you normally attend first service, We will provide a continental breakfast during the second service to make it more convenient for you to remain afterwards. It has been said that every pastor is an interim pastor. It just turns out my interim was a little longer than most, but I am ready to hand off the baton and could not be more optimistic about the future of Chapel Hill. And I'm hopeful that at the right time, Cindy and I will be a part of that future as fellow worshipers and servants under the leadership of our new pastor. I believe in you and what God is doing in you and will continue to do through you. And I'm so grateful to have been your pastor all these years. And don't forget, I'm not gone yet. (laughs) We have some more work to do in the coming year. So be a good cheer, be faithful, and let's keep building a legacy that's worth handing on to the next generation. And we can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Please remain standing for the recessional.